You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Thank you all for coming out tonight. Um, my name is Rena Weissman, and I am a board member with Variety Children's Charity of Northern California. Anyhow, without further ado, I'm going to turn the evening over to our esteemed moderator, Terry Bisson. Thank you. I'll take it. Cool. Thanks for coming out. Um, we have a a group of heavy hitters tonight. We've got uh, some very interesting and important science fiction and fantasy writers. So I'm going to not take up a lot of your time. I'm going to um, just begin. Our drill is we have three readers. We take a break. Everybody buys a drink to support children. And then we, um, we have a Q&A and a bit of a schmooze and a discussion among our authors and between our authors and our audience. Our first reader tonight uh, is needs no introduction, so I'll but I'll do a little bit of one. Um, <laughs> he happens to be a, a close colleague and a good friend. He's one of the original dread lords of cyberpunk. He's the author of the Ware series, uh, and um, let's see, uh, numerous nonfiction books on math and science. And um, right now he has uh, just completed an autobiography called Nested Scrolls. And if you don't know who Rudy Rucker is, you means you don't really know science fiction, which means you probably went to a pretty good college. But you can, <laughs> this is your chance to learn about Rudy Rucker. Thanks, Terry. It's, uh, it's nice to be here at SFNSF. I always enjoy coming here. I appreciate you all organizing this thing. And it's an honor to be here with Jay Lake, the king of the Zeppelins, and <laughs> K.W. Jeter, who's uh, Dr. Adder, has scarred me for life with its <laughs> filth and perversion. So uh, I thought some of you are beginning writers, so I thought I would read some passages from here that have to do with me writing the first few novels that I wrote. Uh, and this is from Nested Scrolls, uh, out from Tor Books. The real start of my writing career happened in 1976, after Sylvia and I went to see the Rolling Stones play once more. This concert was outdoors at a football stadium in Buffalo, New York. Back then, the Stones seemed radical and of the moment. We drove to the concert with Brooks, a young friend of ours who was an apprentice printer, old school metal and ink printing. I was once again awed to see Mick and Keith on stage, right there, in person, two leaders I felt willing to follow in that overhyped year of the United States Bicentennial, two public figures in whom I could believe. The day after the concert, I sat down at my red selectric typewriter and started writing my first beatnik science fiction novel, Spacetime Donuts. I composed the book in the style of my father telling a story after a meal. That is, I made it up as I went along. The early sections of Spacetime Donuts were loosely based on my experiences in graduate school, and the hero's love interest was modeled on my wife, Sylvia. My story was guided by a particular science speculation I wanted to present. If you keep shrinking long enough, you'll eventually end up back where you started, 
in the same place and the same size. The notion of finding planets within our atoms is, of course, something of a cliché. It's the kind of thing that screenwriters have characters talk about in order to indicate that the characters are stoned. <laughs> but I was talking about finding our own planet down there. This is a notion that I dubbed circular scale. Over the years, I've found that every possible idea can be found in some pre-existing piece of science fiction. The corpus of SF is our own homegrown library of Babel. But at the time, I imagined I was the first to think of circular scale. In one of her journal notes, Susan Sontag says that in order to be a writer, you need to be a nut and a moron. A nut to be obsessed enough with an idea to spend months writing a book about it, and a moron to think other people will want to read the book. <laughs> I had these personality traits in place from the start. <laughs> Space-time donuts included another element, a cadre of characters able to plug their minds directly into their society's big computer. In some ways, this prefigures William Gibson's epical cyberpunk novel, Neuromancer, where console cowboys jack their brains into the planetary computer net that Gibson dubbed cyberspace. In proto-cyberpunk fashion, my characters in space-time donuts take drugs, have sex, listen to rock and roll, and are enemies of the establishment. I was initially unable to sell space-time donuts. I had no real idea of where to begin, but I noticed that Bantam Books was publishing a series of SF novels labeled as Frederick Pohl Selections. I'd always loved Pohl's writing, most especially the novels Wolfbane and the Space Merchants that he'd co-authored with Cyril Kornbluth. So I sent him my manuscript in care of Bantam Books. He actually looked at the book and sent back a friendly rejection letter saying something like, this is a fun read, but it's not science fiction. I wasn't entirely discouraged. My hope was that older writers like Pohl simply didn't realize how drastically SF was about to change. A young guy named Barry Kaplan ran a bookstore called Sundance Books on the main street of Geneseo, New York, where I was living. Barry was a rabid fan of the Grateful Dead. He had long blonde hair down to his ass, and he encouraged people to call him Sundance. <laughs> Even so, he was every inch a businessman and very competent at running his store. He had a good collection of countercultural literature and science fiction. One day I found a new SF magazine called Unearth for sale on his shelves. It turned out that Unearth was printing only stories by previously unpublished SF authors, which seemed like a perfect opportunity for me. At first I was going to sell them a short story called Enlightenment Rabies, but then after some correspondence it turned out that they would be willing to run my novel Spacetime Donuts in three installments, the first of which appeared in the summer of 1978. I think they even paid me a couple of hundred bucks. It was an incredible rush to see my name on the lurid cover of a digest-sized pulp magazine. I imagined I was often running as a real science fiction writer. But Unearth went out of business after only publishing two of the three installments, <laughs> and I still couldn't sell the novel as a book. I was beginning to grasp how long a row a writer has to hoe. <laughs> okay, now I'll jump ahead. I, I lost the job at Geneseo, and I found a, I got a grant to come to a place called the Mathematics Institute at the University of Heidelberg in, in Germany. The head of the Mathematics Institute didn't particularly care what I did, which was great. He'd helped me line up the grant, and his group was being reimbursed, and there was nothing more to worry about. In a way, I could do no wrong. He gave me a nice quiet office in the Institute's modern building with no teaching duties at all. 
I thought about a famous mathematical problem called Cantor's Continuum Problem for a few months, reading most of Cantor's philosophical writings in German. It made me feel like a real scholar to be studying these obscure essays, which were not available in English. Cantor was interested in three kinds of infinity, the mathematical, the physical, and the theological. Given that mathematical set theory has developed such a precise system for talking about infinities, I'd already been thinking it would be nice if set theory had some physical applications. It very often takes decades or even centuries until a mathematical theory finds a use in physics. For instance, it was 60 years before Riemann's 1852 theory of curved space appeared in Einstein's 1916 general theory of relativity. It was intriguing that Cantor had talked about physical infinities from the far, very start, back in the 1880s. I also found it interesting that Cantor didn't shy away from discussing the relationship between infinity and God. For the non-mathematician, this seems natural, but academics are, not without reason, squeamish about dragging religion into scientific discussions. Nevertheless, it's reasonable to look for connections between theology and set theory. For instance, a theologian might say God is greater than anything than we conceive. Rather than dismissing this as sheer bombast, a mathematician of a certain stripe might reformulate the claim as the class of all sets is bigger than any set we can define. I set up a seminar at the Mathematics Institute and gave some lectures along these lines. The mathematical logic faculty enjoyed my discussions, even though their real interests lay in more technical work. As the fall of 1978 wore on, I finally came to accept that I was never going to make any big technical breakthrough in extending Kurt Gödel's work to solve Cantor's questions about different levels of infinity. So by the start of 1979, I decided to make better use of my time in Heidelberg and write more science fiction. <laughs> I started by writing science fiction stories, some of them inspired by paradoxical notions from the philosophy of science. I began having some luck selling my stories to SF magazines. Not all of my tales were hard SF. One was about Franz Kafka being reborn in a new body every year. I was reading Kafka's journals at the time, loving him for being such a desperately romantic fanatic. I wrote seven short stories, and then I wrote White Light, a science fiction novel about infinity. Space-Time Donuts had been a fun book, but really it was a work of apprenticeship. With White Light, I got serious about being a novelist. I began writing the book in longhand one weekend in January 1979 when I was alone with the kids. My wife was visiting her dying grandmother in Budapest. I called my novel White Light in memory of my memorable acid trip back at Rutgers. And I gave it a subtitle lifted from a paper by Kurt Kirtle, What is Cantor's Continuum Problem? I'd been corresponding with my college friend Greg Gibson about a new approach to writing science fiction. He crystallized the basic idea very clearly. The cool thing to do would be to write a science fiction novel, but write it about your real life. The main character of White Light was a math professor closely modeled on me, and the setting was very much like Geneseo, New York. As I mentioned earlier, the practice of writing science fiction about real life is what I began calling transrealism later in the early 1980s. In White Light, my life in Geneseo was the real part, and the trans part was that my character in the novel leaves his body and journeys to a land where Cantor's infinities are as common as rocks and plants. White Light was also influenced by the Donald Duck and Zap comics that I loved so well. 
One chapter features Donald and his nephews, and in another chapter, objects start talking, as they sometimes do in our Chrome comic strips. I also used the papers that I'd been reading, by Cantor that I'd been reading, and I included the man himself as a character. Over the years, I've often worked by alternating between writing science fiction and writing popular science. So it was fitting that I began working on an early draft of Infinity in the Mind, my nonfiction book about infinity, at the same time that I was writing White Light. Each endeavor was feeding the other. I got into a very pleasant and exalted mental state during this period of time. I remember having a magical dream in which I was scrambling up the ridge of a mountain. The stone underfoot was slippery pieces of shale, and among the stones I was finding wonderful polyhedral crystals the size of chestnuts or hedgehogs. Even within the dream, I knew that these treasures represented my wonderful new ideas. I finished the manuscript for White Light in the summer of 1979 when I was 33. It would take me a few years later to publish my nonfiction tome. I tried sending White Light to the Scott Meredith Literary Agency. They charged me a couple of hundred bucks to have someone read my manuscript. The anonymous reader disliked the book, and Scott Meredith refused to submit it to any publishers. So then I decided to try selling the manuscript myself. I set off to Ace Books, getting their address from the title page of Ian Watson's Miracle Visitors, a wonderful book written on the same wavelength as White Light. While I was waiting for my book to work its way through the Ace slush pile, I went to my first World Science Fiction Convention in Brighton, England, August 1979, taking the train and ferry from Heidelberg. The atmosphere at mathematics conferences had always been rather frosty. There weren't enough jobs to go around, and newcomers weren't particularly welcome. But the science fiction folks were like, the more the merrier. <laughs> I loved the vibe. What's that beeping? I don't know. <laughs> okay. Oh, it's probably in that coat. I'll say. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Some well-dressed hippies from London got me high on hashish and introduced me to a hipster named Maxim Jakubowski. Maxim was editing a new line of books for the Virgin Record Company. His first book was going to be about the punk band The Sex Pistols, but he was looking for radical SF novels as well. I brought along a single Xerox of the White Light manuscript, and I handed it to Maxim on the spot. A few weeks later, he made me an offer to buy the British rights for the book. A month after that, in the fall of 1979, the editor Jim Bain at Ace made an offer for the U.S. rights. I felt like a plant pushing out from the soil into the sun and air. The word transreal that I came to apply to my novels was inspired by a blurb on the back of my copy of A Scanner Darkly, saying that Philip K. Dick had written a transcendental autobiography. A Scanner Darkly is a hilarious, sorrowful, transreal masterpiece. I got my copy at that SF convention in Brighton. The book was just out, and my new stoner friends had been talking about it, complaining that it was too anti-drug. <laughs> they didn't seem to understand <laughs> that the book was funny. <laughs> After that convention, waiting for my trip back to London and then back to Germany, I was reading Scanner and I was laughing so hard that I left my suitcase on the platform, which I suddenly realized as the train started to move. I jumped back out in the nick of time. Up until Scanner, I hadn't fully grasped how close Phil Dick's novels were to the kinds of books that I wanted to write. I particularly liked the language with a flat tire way that his characters talked in Scanner, 
And over the years, years, I'd begin to emulate his peculiarly Californian tone. And even more, I liked the sense that Phil was writing about real people. I too felt that the characters of my novels should be based on actual people. The characters should do more than woodenly move the plot along. They should be sarcastic, miss the point, change the subject, break the set, and do surprising things. I find it dull when novels have characters who are supposed to be normal people. My sense has always been that there actually aren't any normal people. Everyone I've met is weird at some level. It's liberating to have quirky, unpredictable characters instead of the impossibly good and bad paper dolls of mass culture. As I mentioned above while talking about white light, lifelike characters are the real part of trans real. Okay. Um, all right. So while I was in Heidelberg, my parents got divorced. I was really unhappy about it. What to do? I started work on another science fiction novel. When faced with life's intolerable realities, I tend to transmute them into literary art. In this case, I planned to write a transreal novel as before, but without using myself as a character. I sensed that not having a specific Rudy-inspired character would give the other characters more space to develop and to open up. One character, called Cobb Anderson, would be an old man modeled on my father in his current state. To some extent, I could project myself onto this character, too. For all our disagreements over the years, Pop and I never were all that different. Another factor in my writing about Pop was that I was in some sense trying to inoculate myself against ending up like him, besotted, afraid of death, and on the run from his family. The other character in my novel was a young guy called Stehi Mooney. After all these years, I wanted fully to develop a character based on my wild and wacky friend, Dennis Polk, a guy who used to turn up in Geneseo to visit his big brother, Lee, when I was, who was teaching there. What I liked about Dennis was that he seemed to have no internal censor. He always said exactly what he was thinking. He was relatively uneducated, but he had a fanciful mind and a hipster, motor mouth style of speech. In the opening scene, Cobb is sitting on a beach in Florida drinking sherry, and he's approached by his double. At first, I thought I was writing a time travel novel, but then I hit on the notion that Cobb's double should be a robot copy of him. To make this work, I developed the idea that it would, will become possible to extract a person's personality from their brain, and that it will then be possible to run the extracted human software on some fresh hardware. And why not have the hardware be a robot resembling the person's former body? Software. In 1979, this was a technical and little-known word. I would picked it up from an article in Scientific American. I decided to use it for the title of my book. I finished software near the end of our stay in Heidelberg in the summer of 1980, and I had no trouble selling it to Susan Allison, the pleasant and intelligent woman who had taken over from Jim Bain as the science fiction editor at Ace Books. So let's see. I think, is that 15 minutes I've been reading? Or maybe I'll stop <coughs> <laughs> okay, maybe I'll just stop there. Our second reader is um, one of those younger, very talented, very prolific, very public, very appealing, and very successful writers that uh, legacy writers like myself <laughs> are envious of. We've also become... We're not constant companions, but we've, I think we've become friends over, over the years. And um, without further ado, I will just 
introduce um, um, a reader who has read here before, and we're glad to have here again. From Portland, the, two, the winner of the John W. Campbell New Writer Award, which he's no longer, hasn't been for a while, eligible for, <laughs> Jay Lake. Thank you. I want to thank you guys for throwing that big parade for me outside. That was really awesome. And dragons, uh, especially. Yeah. Well, you know, I was born in Taiwan. It's been all in my childhood there. So you know, it really was about me. Um, and uh, as far as hanging around with legacy writers, I commented before before this event that I feel hopelessly outclassed at this table. Um, I'm going to read a little bit from Sunspin, which is the rather large space opera series that I decided I wanted to write because I'm kind of an idiot. Um, it involves like 600,000 words of first draft and a whole bunch of other things. And I has actually was trying to decide whether to read the first section, which is a space battle, or the second section, which is a conversation. And um, <laughs> one of my first readers convinced me you'd rather hear the conversation than the space battle. So uh, we'll see what we get out of this. The little bit of information you need to know that you would know if you had read the first section is that the, a character named Cannon, who is the oldest woman in the universe, and, or the oldest human in the galaxy, and has survived a literally apocalyptic event to sort of watch civilization come back, has disappeared carrying an important secret that no one's really quite sure about yet. The lesser presence chamber was large enough to contain a decently sized starship. A flattened ovoid almost a kilometer long and half that in diameter, the central axis was dominated by a zero-gravity water sculpture that circulated with varying degrees of fury, cycling to match the mood and metabolism of the Imperator. The outer walls were a nearly abstract pattern of spun diamond windows, admitting a view of the orbital space about Vertanen B, alternating with fractally textured biogenic surfaces. Each of the latter mimicked in color and form the ecosystem of a selected planet in the Imperium Humanum, a map of the idea of the Imperium Humanum, in effect, wrapping around every visitor like a fist of power. Exits and entrances, viewing galleries, guard posts, waiting areas, holding pens, kitchens, baths, Half a thousand useful and needful things were concealed amid the towering stems and colored clouds of the solid panels. Hard vacuum lurked beyond the spun diamond, scored and textured by the booms and arms and curving arches of the palace orbital's exterior structure. The Imperator, Pete, Moreland, Clovis, Srinagar, Byers, Clovis, Subshang, Sun Brockman, often but somewhat inaccurately referred to as the Imperator Moreland II, paced the artfully chaotic turf of a small floating island. Profoundly fit and with a sort of build that only nine centuries of careful breeding and genetic sculpting could produce, the Imperator was not an overly tall man. His eyes were a dense, intense brown, his hair likewise brown, though somewhat more pale, with a few deliberate streaks of that gray which signals seniority and authority to the human mind. Layers of achromatic spider silk clad him in a multifaceted fall of robes, so that the Imperator was difficult to keep in the eye from any distance, at least for those not fitted with the correct oculi. The island itself measured about 10 meters long, perhaps 7 meters wide, irregular in form, and was covered with a springy bright green grass in which winked tiny flowers of a dozen species and far more colors. The underside was an inverted pyramid of rock, soil, and questing roots, all of it disguising the subtle and necessary machinery that kept the island aloft and equipped with gravity. Moreland II was cradled by two people. One, Mist, interlocutrix of the Navis Parliament, barely 20 years of age, and blessed with an uncanny ebony-skinned white-haired beauty that emphasized the degree to which she was an artificial creation, bore a library in her arms. She wore a simple coverall of pale blue intended to evoke the working uniform of a starship's crew, though it had been tailored by some of the finest seamsters in the Imperium Humanum, 
The other, Freddy Tavares, Special Assistant to the Associate Minister of Polity Affairs, a squat, swarthy mainline human with a raw-boned face who would have looked at home in a back-alley dirt side and dressed hardly better in a modest gray business suit, bore only a worried expression. Tavares was also the only one of the three who could have walked down an ordinary city street alone and unbothered. This was an irony of power he had long marked with commendable silence. Your ship mines are surely taking the example of the befores as a salutary caution. The befores are the very small group of quasi-immortals that the missing cannon belongs to. The Imperator once more picked up the threads of a long-running discussion. His voice had held a dangerous edge. Nist shrugged, gently rocking the library, which whimpered an unheard complaint through desiccated lips. They do not perceive the experience of the befores as a relevant example. The uh, consciousness template of a ship mind has very little in common with the analogous structures of the human mind, Tavares added, or what we know of the before mind, sire. He was the imperatorial government's leading expert on that particular set of issues, at least with respect to the quasi-immortal and frighteningly powerful befores. They were like a virus insisted in the body politic of the Imperium Humanum, quiescent but with a fatal power of stirred activity. At that thought, he glanced sideways at the library Raisa, cradled by mist, where the interlocutrix was barely of adult age and years subjective. The library held the unfortunate distinction of being the mortal remains of one of the oldest befores, as well as being the first of them to be libraried at her death. Her bald, wizened head was made into the next stump with a small jeweled casket. Lacquered azure was studded with rubies, emeralds, and other gems. Subtle machineries within that base served to maintain the ancient brain with its subdural matrices of memory and processing power. More prosaically, it also provided a data interface. The cracked lips were moving again, though the voice box embedded in the casket would have worked well enough. Fifteen centuries of being human, or at least human-derived, had given the library habits that were hard to break. Besides which, she was encounted, accounted to be among the least stable of the 38 libraries known to exist in the Imperium Humanum. There was, that was something of a distinction, given their notoriously strange behavior. Tavares broke off his distracted attempt to read the library's lips and focused more closely on the Imperator's remarks. Failing to do so could be a traumatic experience. Moreland II very much believed in teaching by example. Some of his examples in the past have been fatally permanent. But we do not understand, the Emperor was, Imperator was saying, one hand waving wide. A failure to comprehend this could be fatal. Mistake fatal, ultimately. Freddy? When someone in high authority, and there was no authority higher than the Imperator, invoked the mistake as a basis of comparison, it wasn't just media-driven hyperbole. The death of half a trillion human beings and a thousand planets at the hands of still unknown aliens had left a scar on the collective psyche of Homo sapiens that eleven and a half centuries of recovery and reconstruction had barely begun to erase. Sire, Tavares replied automatically, stalling for a moment to think. As Imperators went, Moreland II was a fairly reasonable man, a fairly reasonable man who expected to be attended to closely and held the power of life and death over virtually everyone around him. Mist was a notable and rare exception to that dominance. Not a citizen, in a sense the only slave in the Imperium Humanum, she was property of and protected by the Navis Parliament. Lucky woman. He could feel the sweat breaking on his forehead. Sire, Tavares searched for something <coughs> to say in response to the Imperator's question. Even now, there was so little we understand about the Howard Initiative during the Palti era. Too much data was irretrievably obliterated by the mistake, or hidden since, depending on how nefarious one was willing to believe the befores were. We have no baseline from which to extrapolate. The before Michaela Cannon is, was, is our best example. She is lost to us, the Imperator replied starkly. His tone of voice clearly implied that Cannon might soon not be the only one lost. Along with the starship, third rectification, 58 pairs, Mist reminded him sharply. 
saving Tavares from his untenable position in the conversation, a valuable ship mine with as much personhood as any before, and over a hundred of our subjects, the Imperator snapped. Tavares rallied. These difficult conversations were his job, after all. They've only been missing six of years' objective, your highness, he pointed out. If something happened that required the starship to return at relativistic speeds, they could be some years yet. The before Michaela Cannon has survived everything that's happened to her for over 2,000 years. Underestimating a before was rather like underestimating a nuclear weapon. It was a mistake most people only ever got to make once. While managing to recover from temporal psychosis, the Imperator turned and paced back again. She's the only before who has ever come back from that decline. That is a rare feat indeed, one that our researchers have never been able to fully explain. He glanced back at the library Issa, still in Miss's arms. What have you to say, Oracle? Bubbles of, bluish bubbles of lysergic acid formed at the corners of leathered lips. Eyes like dried olives twitched, another ancient habit of life. Loss, the library whined. Time breathes decay like a fat man farts. We live too long, we die too slow. The emperor stared for a long moment, his brown eyes narrow slits. Sire, Tavares began. When you phrase, Moreland II raised a hand to forestall the comment. I am perfectly well aware of the uses and limitations of a library minister. Inside the stars, the secrets lie. They collect shadows within the blinding of the light. Silence, the Imperator ordered. The library raisa subsided, twitching and muttering and dripping azure goo from the gash of its mouth. Mist, still carrying the head on its bejeweled casket, did not seem to notice. You could simply ask the ship mines. Tavares tried to track her thinking without success. The Imperator shook his head, one arm spreading with open-fingered gesture. Prima facie, they do not tell us the truth. Miss's voice was chill. They do not lie. I do not say that your masters lie. I said they do not tell the truth. Those are not equivalent statements. Forgive me, Morland. She laughed unexpectedly, voice trilling like springtime birds. Sometimes I misunderstand your precision. I rule 600 worlds, yet I cannot cause one young woman to divine my intent. His frown was stormy as he gazed at Tavares. Those ground eyes glittered dangerously. What would you ask the ship mines, Freddy? Uh, Tavares knew a rhetorical killing field when he saw one. Time to gracefully duck the question. I would ask their interlocutrix. She smiled at him somewhere between sweet and edged. They do not share our journey. Time is a different experience for Polyphemus than the rest. A pair of intense gazes prodded Tavares to unwilling response. The Imperator's mood was setting his own nerves on edge. The, that is where the comparison of the before seems sensible to me, sire, Sarah. He took a deep breath, watching the Imperator's expression nervously. They may have been human once, but they've long since embarked on their own journey through time. They were once children as well. Likewise, in an important sense, the, children, the ship mines are children of men. The Imperator glared at him. Your reasoning fails. There have been no new before since the mistake. New ship mines are instantiated several times each decade objective. Moved to stubbornness, Tavares spoke more forcefully than he truly thought wise in such rarefied and dangerous company. Both befores and ship mines were brought into being by human ingenuity. In principle, he added silently, they could be removed by human ingenuity. In practice, perhaps not so much. Not precisely, murmured Misk. No, not precisely. Inhuman and grotesquely powerful, both befores and the ship mines had long since transcended their progenitors. Unsealed, the first ship mined had been an emergent phenomenon manifesting amid some of the earliest post-mistake experiments with the paired drive. The befores were an artifact of the pre-mistake polity, with their roots extending backwards through time to the dim ages prior to the advent of interstellar travel. But effectively so, regardless, and even the oldest of the ship mines are several centuries younger than the youngest of the befores. Each type of mind demonstrates to us something important about consciousness, direction, and time. In observing them, I have come to understand that sentience is not a selection criteria for immortality. Tell that to the before Michaela Cannon. 
The Imperator loosed a decidedly unconventional sort of amusement, or possibly disgust. At least his mood was growing more relaxed. In Mist's arms, the library became very agitated at his mention of canon. I take your point, the interlocutrix said more gently, but though both paths are divergent from yours, they are also divergent from one another. The fours are failing. I think that's all my time. Our next heavy hitter at our table is a writer who, um, I guess we were referring to ourselves as legacies, as kind of old timers <laughs> a little while ago. This guy hit with a, a, a real bang in the 80s with, uh, many, uh, with books that many saw as the sort of beginning of the um, cyberpunk and the beginning of, in many ways, of the steampunk phenomenon. He, uh, since then, he's, he's a little bit, to me, like the hedgehog of science fiction. Now you see him and now you don't. Uh, when he's around, he's, he's very visible, and when he's not, you kind of wonder where he is. Uh, he's, al he's also uh, written uh, several um, Star Wars and Star Trek-type books. He's been a New York Times bestseller, and his new book is what uh, is called Supernatural Historical Fantasy, I believe is how the Kingdom of Shadows oh, was okay. described by somebody, but um, I don't know if he's going to read from that tonight or what. But at any rate, we are very pleased to welcome here for the first time K.W. Jeter. All right. Well, I'm really... What's that? That's, what's that? Is that so sweet? <laughs> yeah, what's that? That's the future, dude. Um, uh, can, can people hear me all right? Uh, okay. Um, I'm really glad to, to be reading after these two guys because, I, I one, I, I admire them both greatly. And secondly, they're so much fun, and their stuff is so enjoyable, and everybody's in a good mood and everything like that. You know, I hate to spoil the party until everybody's had, you know, fun. And, you know, I've had people, you know, come up to me after reading and say, you know, I was having a good time until I heard you read your stuff. <laughs> and I've always had to respond by saying, you know, it's not just my, my writing that has that effect on people. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's been a thing, you know, all my life. Um, and very oddly, uh, because just recently, uh, I've been writing a lot of, uh, uh, you know, lighthearted stuff. Uh, including the um, the sequel to my old ste steampunk novel, um, Infernal Devices, um, sequel of that called uh, Fiendish Schemes. That'll be out uh, probably next year uh, from Tor. And then uh, I got started writing um, uh, a series of thriller novels that right now are only available on uh, for the Kindle in the Nook uh, called the Kim O Thrillers, which are my first uh, non-science fiction or non-fantasy uh, uh, forays. And um, what's very strange about them uh, is that I wrote them very fast. And it was one of the first times of my writing career, probably since uh, when I first started writing, that I really felt like I was channeling a, a, a voice. And uh, the novels are written in uh, the first person, or you know, they're told in the first person by a 20-year-old um, a female Korean-American. And people have read the books and said, well, you're obviously not drawing on deep personal experience here, uh, except for maybe the 20-year-old part, and you've probably forgotten that. 
Um, but you know, she, she's she's an interesting person, and uh, she has sort of a a, a, a simmering uh, anger about uh, um, the American workplace. I mean, she essentially she gets into killing people because she hates her boss, and and <laughs> and, and it's only the first one that's hard. After that, uh, it, it becomes easier and easier. But after I, you know, I, and, but the books are essentially humorous. You know, like all novels about killing your boss are. Uh, you know, lighthearted, um, and they are a tremendous amount of fun to write, and uh, you know, I was having a good time, and people have told me these are really funny and everything, and you know, usually in a, usually in a disbelieving voice, you're like, these are really funny, are you sure you wrote them? And I go, yeah, yeah, I, I can pull it out when I want to. But, but, you know, after having had so much fun writing those, um, a fellow named Stephen Ansack, I believe uh, uh, he pronounces his name, he's uh, editing a uh, a, um, uh, an anthology for the Penguin Group, which I believe is going to be called um, Clockwork Fables. Oh. oh, did you get solicited for that? Yeah. Okay. Did you? Did you? Yeah. Did, I, he, he, I, he, I just rewrote the editorial for that. So. Oh, okay. Great. Great. Super. Okay. So we're both going to be in it. Super. Okay. Watch. Watch for uh, uh, Clockwork Fables, uh, edited by uh, Stephen Ansack, coming from uh, the Penguin Group. Uh, it's, you know, the the concept of the collection is that they're um, Steampunk uh, takes on old uh, fairy tales and fantasies and uh, legends and, and things like that. And uh, I got solicited for it by uh, Mr. Ansek. And um, I said, you know, can I choose anything? And uh, he said, well, sure, you know, that's the point where I'm going to, you know, order you. And um, I chose um, uh, Hans Christian Andersen's The Red Shoes. Ooh, yeah, okay, there you go, super. Um, partly, not so much because of the, 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 the original story, but because of the, the great movie that was based upon it. The, uh, the Michael Powell, isn't it? Michael Powell, the director of uh, uh, The Red Shoes, which essentially took the, the concept of, of um, you know, dancing to death and, and made this great meditation about, about the, uh, the, the cost of one's commitment to one's art. Um, plus the movie has got one of the, the, the great, great dancing actresses of all time, Moira Shearer, in it. Um, beautiful redhead, too. Uh, and anyway, uh, so in that sense, my take on The Red Shoes is not, you know, similar to either the original Hans Christian Andersen story or the, uh, the Michael Powell movie, but sort of uh, just plays off that certain element of it. Um, and I thought that, that, that Stephen would probably have a surfeit of stories that were essentially lighthearted and humorous and, and fun. So I thought he'll probably want something really, or he'll be in need of something really grim and gray and depressing to sort of <laughs> counterbalance it. And, and I'm the man, you know, uh, for, for that sort of thing. And so um, this is my take on um, um, Hans Christian Andersen and Michael Powell's uh, the, the Red Shoes, it's called uh, La Valse, which I'm sure most of you will get as a reference to the, uh, the great uh, Maurice Ravel piece <coughs> and the, uh, the uh, Balanchine uh, ballet that was based upon it. And I am reading it, you know, off of, you know, none, none of this. Is that, is that Luddite or what? I mean, you're, you're embarrassing me, Jay. This is the past. This, this is the past, here we go, okay. All right, so. Um, and and uh, Terry promised to uh, 
taser, give me a 15-minute taser as, no, as a warning we shot. Read the okay. story now. Okay, read the story now. now. I've already burned up 15 minutes. We're done. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, but anyway, if it depresses you, you know, it's obviously tough shit. I'm going, yes, he's going tough shit. This is like listening to Bob Silverberg give a Hugo presentation. Very close, very close, very close, yeah. Uh, I think some of, some of Bob's Hugo presentations are still going on. So, uh, yeah. The problem, said Herr Dr. Pavel, is that we gained our empire when we were young, and now we are old. With a great iron spanner in his hands, he turned to his assistant and smiled. What could be worse than that? I don't know. Anton felt himself to be a child when hearing of such things. I'm not as old as you, at all. Around them, in the Apollo Sol's basements, the machinery wept. Even though they had both spent the better part of a week down there in preparation for this evening's grand events, still the miasmatic hiss and soft plodding leaks prevailed over their efforts. The tun-shaped boilers, vast enough to engulf carriages and peasants' huts, shuddered with the scalding forces pent inside them. Their rivets seeped rust. In the far-off corners where the theatrical scenery was kept and more often forgotten, pasteboard castles sagged beneath the threadbare fronds of a humid jungle of faux palm trees. Age, like wealth, is but a mental abstraction, my boy. The doctor peered at a creaking armature above his head adjusting some aspect of it with a miniature screwdriver, skill as precise and surgical as though his title were that of a physician rather than an engineer. And nothing more, he said. People fancy that God loves them and consider themselves and their kind exceptional as a result. He wiped his pale, egg-like brow with the grease-smeared lace of his shirt cuff. If such fancies were gears and dreams cogs, I would wind this world's mainspring tight enough to hum. Anton didn't know what that meant. The doctor was of an obscure and poetic persuasion. He took the screwdriver from the hand held toward him, replacing the tool in its exact slot with the greater and smaller ones on either side. Will everything be ready by tonight? He thought that was more important to know. If the ballroom's mechanisms were not completely functional and satisfactory when the guests arrived, then the doctor and he would not be paid, resulting in a cold and hungry New Year's Eve for them. Not to worry. The doctor picked up his tool bag and moved on. He tapped a lean forefinger on a set of calliope-like pipes, each in turn, flakes of rust drifting onto his vest as he bent his ear toward them. Just as a physician counterpart might thump the chest of a tubercular patient to assess how long he had to live. No one's merriment will be impaired by the likes of us. In winters such as these, were there any other kind anymore? Anton limited his hopes to that much. If one managed to get to the first muddy, thawing days before actual spring, then there was a chance, at least, of something other than this, something other than the dank, hissing basements under the ballrooms and palaces of that finer, fragile world above. Far from the sharp-toothed gears and interlocking wheels, the pistons gleaming in their oily sheaths, the ticking escapements wide as cartwheels, the mainsprings uncoiling like nests of razor-thin serpents. He could take Giesel out beyond the apple orchards, their branches still black and leafless, no matter that it would cost him a day's wages and her a scolding from the head housekeeper. What would it matter if both of them would go supperless that night, bellies empty as their aching arms? 
lying on straw-filled pallets far from each other, gazing out cobwebbed attic windows at an envious moon, remembering how the ice at the roots of the sodden grass creaked beneath the back of her chambermaid's blouse, his face buried in the gathered folds of her apron, smelling of honey and lye, her hand stroking his close-cropped head as she turned her face away and wept at how happy she was, if only for a moment. What are you dreaming about? The doctor's voice broke into his warming reveries. Come over here and help me open up these valves. He did as he was ordered, letting all the girls' smiles flutter away like ashes up a chimney flue. Straining at the stubborn machinery, he let one other hope step inside his heart, that none of their work here, readying for the gala ball, would require going down into the sub-basements below these, where the great roaring furnaces and boilers resided. He hated having to go down there, hated seeing the stokers chained between the fiery iron doors and heaps of coal, the shimmering heat revealing the stripes across their naked backs. Their eyes would turn toward him as they crouched over their black shovels. Their eyes would tell him, as you are, once were we. Steal but the slightest crust or bauble and join us here. Their extinguished voices would follow him as he fled up the spiral of clanging metal stairs, the errand accomplished that Herr Dr. Favell had sent him on. He could hear them now, whispering far beneath his sodden clogs, as he gritted his teeth and strained to turn the most ancient of the spoked wheels another quarter turn. That's good. The doctor stepped back, wiping his hands across his vest. Anton, my coat, if you please. He fetched the swallow-tailed garment, lifting it from the hook by the stone arch of the cellar door. The horsehair-padded shoulders itched his own palms as he helped the doctor slide into its heavy woolen arms. There, an old man's vanity. He tugged at the lapels, gazing fondly at his reflection in one of the floor's puddles. When everyday gentlemen dressed as elegant as this, the empire was feared by Cossack and Hun alike. If you say so, Anton had no memory of such things. The doctor might have been imagining such faded glories for all he knew. We'll discuss it another time. The sad state of his assistant's learning was a topic frequently evoked if never acted upon. Let's fire her up, lad. A job well done's the best payment. Anton watched as the doctor pushed one lever after another. Constellations of gears engaged about them, all enveloped in sweating vapor. Ratchet and piston moved through their limited courses, the clatter of brass and iron loud as church bells on a tone-deaf Easter morning. Splendid! The doctor bent his head back, gazing up enraptured at the chamber's damp ceiling. Do you hear it? Do you? He knew what those sounds were, barely audible through the commotion of the machinery driving them. He had heard them before, every year's in, from when he had first apprenticed to the dancing engineer's trade. To now, this last calendar page, so much dragglier and tattered than the ones from all the years before. He pulled his own thin coat away from one of the jointed apertures, thrusting up through the ceiling, careful not to be snagged by its pump-like motions. All through the basement, more such churned away, up and down and at various angles, pivoting upon the hinges that he and the doctor had so carefully greased. Like a mechanical forest, brought to clanking animation, white gouts billowing from every quivering pipe. There they go, thought Anton, as he looked up where the doctor gazed. He could see them without going up the stairs to the grand ballroom. The empty metal frameworks, like iron scarecrows, would be bowing to one another, then embracing, the smaller with the larger, just as if already filled by the evening's elegant guests. 
Already, the mechanical violins were scraping their bows across the rosin strings. Closing his eyes, he watched from inside his head as each skeletal apparatus, jointed struts and trusses, cages shaped into men and women, took another by a creaking hand, then swirled across the acres of polished floor, just as though it were the music that impelled them, rather than clockwork and steam. Giesel breathed into her cupped hands, warming the strands of pearls she held. There might come a day when she was old enough, with years of servile experience ingrained through every memory, that she would be entrusted to help dress their dowager employer. For now, Giesel watched as the senior maids, some of them older than the bent and wrinkled figure upon whom they waited, busied themselves with the intricate laces and stays. Ah, you're too cruel to me. Vanity and girlish affectations tinged the dowager's simpered, murmured words. You'll break something one of these days. I know you will. She brought her hawk-etched, deep-seamed visage over the lace at her shoulder and smiled the yellow of old parchment at her attendants. But not tonight, she said. Be so sweet as to spare me just one more night of pleasure. The maids said nothing, but obliged with nods and their own little smiles. Giesel had heard the old woman say the same thing the year before and the year before that. She had still been working in the scullery three winters ago, scrubbing the stone floors with a wet rag. But the oldest of the chambermaids had told her that the dowager had spoken the same words every New Year's Eve for decades now. None of them were quite sure that the dowager could say anything else, at least not while getting dressed for the ball. She watched as the others stepped back, the gown assembled into place at last, as though a seamstress had wrapped lengths of ancient silk around a bone dummy. The dowager admired herself in triptych of full-length mirrors, as though the gray film at the center of her eyes somehow filtered out the overlapping scales of time, letting through only the image of the lithe girl she still believed herself to be. Now the pearls were as warm as Giesel's blood. They could have been a kitten sheltered beneath, between one palm and the other, if only they had breathed and had a fluttering pulse inside soft fur. She stepped forward with them, holding the, them up as though they were some sort of offering. No, not now. The dowager surprised them all by saying something different that she had never said before. She waved a wrinkled, impatient hand at Giesel. They caught last time in the framework. Her scarleted nails clawed at the tendons that ridged her neck. How they tormented me the whole beautiful night, dancing and dancing, and the whole time I felt as though I was being strangled. I could have burst into tears from the pain if I had let myself. Giesel dared to speak, though she received a warning glance from the oldest chambermaid. You don't want to wear them? Silly girl, of course I do. They were my mother's, and her mother took communion from the hand of a pope with them around her throat. How could I not wear them on a festive occasion such as this? I wear them every New Year's ball. I'm sorry. Don't fret about it, dear. The dowager smiled even wider and scarier as she let one of the other maids settle a wrap about her shoulders. Let us go to the Apollo Sol, you and I, just the two of us. Won't that be fun? And you can put the pearls upon me there so you can make certain they don't pinch and bind. I believe that's the smartest thing to do, don't you? I don't know why I didn't think of it before. The notion terrified Giesel. Her heart pounded at the base of her own throat as she felt all the other maids turning their silent premonitory gaze upon her. What would she do without the others, the older ones, to tell her what to do? But I don't know. No one will mind, I'm sure. Once the music starts, I'm sure there'll be some little corner where you can crouch and hide, 
perhaps in the back from where the waiters bring the champagne and the marzipan cakes. No one will even see you. The dowager's eyes were like ivory knife points set in crepe paper as she went on smiling. She knows I'm scared, thought Giesel, holding the bundled pearls closer to herself. That's why she wants me to go with her. If only she hadn't let the dowager see that in her, she might have had a chance to escape. But now there wasn't any. She nodded dumbly and followed the other woman out of the dressing room and toward the curving sweep of stairs that led down to the carriage outside the door and all the wintry city streets beyond. As the guests assembled, he saw her. Anton's heart raced, it always did, as though some internal furnace of his emotions had been stoked higher. Assembled, it seemed almost literally to him. This was the part of his apprenticeship to the doctor which he disliked the most. Some tasks were worse than others. He thanked God, the one cloaked in the tattered remnants of his faith, that this one came about only once a year, and at the end of it, so that even in the bleakest December, there would likely be no further discouragements. With his own toolkit slung by a leather strap from his shoulder, he hastened through the grand ballroom. Only the lesser nobility were entrusted to him, and of those, only the men. He knelt before baronets and princelings, the younger sons of dynasties and households, so ancient that their pedigrees might have been traced in whatever pages would have followed the book of Revelations. As Herr Dr. Pavel had pointed out more than once to him, youth was as relative a term as wealth, in this case meaning only slightly less gray and enfeebled. With wrench and calibrated screwdrivers, Anton encased spindly legs, cavalry boots buffed lustrous by their lackeys into the jointed cage-like frames. Standing up, he fastened curved metal bands about the nobleman's waists and chests, taking care not to disarray their ranks of metals, gleaming as miniature suns <coughs> with the profiles of dead emperors at their centers. Last came the tapered armatures locked into place at their wrists and elbows, linked by clever pistons to the similar mechanisms at their shoulders. With a few of the more dissipated, he had to hold their arms above their heads himself, while with his other hand he completed the necessary fastenings. As a lady's maid might corset an obese matron, he would then raise a knee to the small of their backs in order to engage all the torso elements to the mechanical iron spines that extended from their hips to the napes of their stiffly collared necks. But he had to admit the results were impressive when he finally stood back from each one, his tools dangling in each hand. They stood at attention, chests thrust out inside the metal cages, shoulders pulled back by bows of iron behind them each as proudly straight as though their decorations had been won on actual battlefields. With practice accumulated over decades, the doctor was able to work so much faster, encasing not only the more elderly noblemen, but all their wives and daughters and courtesans as well. The doctor had told Anton that the women were easier as their bodies were more pliant, more accustomed to the rigors of fashion, more submissive to the attentions of men. He wasn't sure about that. They all terrified him, the old ones, with the bodices like the prows of bejeweled warships, the comparatively younger with their sharp glances aimed over fluttering fans as though they were infantry rifles. He would have believed that the women were more ready than the men to pick up their grandfather's sabers and run through any foes worthy of such an encounter. Such attentions are a delight, Herr Doctor. The Grand Duchess of some inconsequential principality simpered through her fan. If only my late husband's touch had been so skilled. You flatter me, madam. Wielding a brace of screwdrivers, the doctor completed adjusting across the steel bands spanning the woman's capacious bosom. I am no more than a simple craftsman. 
Anton finished encasing those to whom he had been inside, assigned. The gaudy colors of their parade uniforms seeped through the hinged ligatures and mechanisms, as might the plumage of exotic birds in tightly bound aviaries. They preened before each other the skeletal limbs of their full-length cages creaking in place as he knelt at the side of the ballroom, wiping the tools with an oily rag before putting them away. A fluttering murmur arose from the noblewomen. Without glancing over his shoulder, Anton knew that the last of their number had arrived. Every New Year's Eve, the dowager's arrival at the ballroom was the culminating event of the preparations, the signal that the festivities were soon to commence. Carefully timed, as though the old woman had some preternatural sense of when all the others had been bolted and strapped into place, ready to admire and obsequiously comment as she assumed her rightful position among them. The doctor set to work with no need of greeting or command. One of the senior maids in the dowager's retinue took the wrap from her shoulders, the sable fur powdered with snow not yet melted in the ballroom's heat. Another waited upon the dowager, who had not accompanied her the year before. When Anton closed his toolkit and stood up, keeping close to the paneled wall, he spotted Giesel. That was when his heart sped and his breath caught in his throat. Not at seeing her face, when it, that had ever made him other but happy, but at discerning the fear inscribed upon it. She stood behind all the others, her own gaze downcast, arms close against her ribs, red chafed hands locked upon some bundle glistening white. The pulse at her throat ticked even faster than his, impelled by whatever terror it was that she felt. There, Herr Dr. Pavel stood back from the dowager, his intricate labors done. The evening is yours, madam. Enjoy it as you wish. Not yet, said the woman, now surrounded by the same metal struts and linkages as the other guests. There are still the best adornments to be put on. She turned and looked past the knot of chambermaids to the one farthest behind them. My pearls. Giesel scurried up to the dowager, her hands opening to cup the circled strands. Don't dawdle, child. The ball is to commence at any moment. The reason for Giesel's fear was quickly evident to Anton as he watched her struggle to fasten the pearls around the dowager's neck. The articulated metal bands came up high enough on the woman, as with all the other noble guests, to make the task more than merely difficult, close to impossible, in fact. <coughs> His own hands tensed into useless fists as he watched the girl attempting to draw the pearls through the narrow space between the dowager's wrinkled throat and the inside of the assemblage about her. What is the matter with you? The dowager fidgeted in discomfort, a soured grimace evidencing her dislike of another human being so close. Is such a simple task beyond you? The woman's sniping words didn't help. Giesel became even more flustered, her face draining white and her hands shaking with anxiety. Beneath her fingertips, one of the gleaming strands caught in the angle of a metal hinge. She tugged at the graduated length, attempting to free it. The silken thread inside snapped. The tiny precious spheres, spheres flew in all directions, bouncing and clattering on the ballroom floor. Cretin! The dowager's face was a wrinkled mask of fury as her bony hand slapped Giesel. Idiot, look what you've done. I'm sorry. Giesel was already down on her hands and knees, trying to gather up all the scattered pearls. It was futile. Some of them had rolled and vanished into the grooved apertures through which the various machinery from the cellars below protruded, scalding vapors hissing along the jointed armatures. I didn't mean the smallest of them is worth more than you. The point of the dowager's heeled boot caught Giesel in the ribs, hard enough to evoke a gasp from her. Twenty of such as you. 
Anton wouldn't have thought there was so much strength in the old woman. As he watched, another kick brought a spatter of blood from Giesel's mouth. If it hadn't been for the cage-like mechanism bolted into place around the dowager, her anger might have been enough to take off the offending girl's head. Don't. Herr Dr. Pavel laid a restraining hand across Anton's chest as he had stepped forward from the wall. I'll take care of it. Tears had diluted pink the blood that Giesel smeared with her palm as she huddled into a ball, knees against her breast. She barely looked up as the doctor interposed herself, himself between her and the dowager. It was but an accident, the doctor soothed. No harm was intended. The dowager's rage continued without respite. She was even smiling, a slash across her starkly rouged face as her gloved and jeweled hand struck the doctor. Her eyes glittered in triumph as he fell at her feet. A blow such as that wouldn't have been enough to kill the doctor. Anton knew that. Perhaps it was the shame to be treated as a mere servant in front of all this nobility. It didn't matter. He pressed his own spine tighter to the paneled wall, gazing with dire presentiment at the unmoving figure crumpled on the ballroom floor. The manager of the dowager's estates came down to the cellar to talk with Anton. He sat on a little wooden crate that at one time had held canisters of grease for the machinery clanking and wheezing all about them. Up above, he could hear the dancing. The unmanned violins scraped their bows across the strings, the sprightly rhythms impelling the aristocratic figures through their motions, or seeming to. You're aware, aren't you, that this person's dead? Anton looked over to where the manager, in his black livery, tilted the doctor's chin with an ink-stained finger. The old man's face was gray and slack, his eyes already filming over. Yes, he nodded. I knew that, even before they brought him down here. The distant, the distant instrument skirled and stuttered through the Hungarian galop, its rapid notes audible through the mechanical clamor closer at hand. From below, he could hear the roaring of the furnaces driving every step of cavalry boot and sweep of lace-fringed gown. So I can hardly pay you, can I? The manager pulled his hand back, letting the doctor's head nod back onto the motionless chest. Our contract is with him, or rather it was. His unfortunate demise would seem to nullify the relationship. Did he have heirs? A shake of the head as Anton bit his lower lip. He was not surprised at what the manager, with the accounts book in a pocket of the swallow-tailed coat, told him now. He had expected as much in his own sinking heart but to hear it pronounced with gallows finality that he would not receive his year's wages, which Air Dr. Pavel had always settled upon him as the midnight bells had struck, that he would go homeless and hungry, peering through shuttered shop windows for even the illusory hope of some new employment. He felt his hollow stomach clench at the thought of the empty, wintry streets that lay outside the Apollo Sol. If he had such, you might apply to them. The manager drew on his gloves for what's owed to you. Anton said nothing. He knew no one owed him anything now. That was the way of the world. He watched the estate's manager mount the creaking iron ring, spiraling back up to the light and music above. Alone once more with his former master's corpse, he leaned forward where he sat, arms across his knees, hands working themselves into a brooding knot. His own hunger he scarcely minded. He was used to that but Giesel had surely lost her place in the dowager's service. If he were able to pay for even a few more weeks of the attic room shelter, he might have taken her there, 
and wrapped his arms about her as they lay on the brown spotted snow heaped in one narrow corner. He might have kept her safe there as they both waited for the cold year to return, the snows to melt under springs desperately longed for advance. They had both whispered plans to each other that he might break from the doctor's drudging employ, that they both might flee from the city and live on wild apples and snared woodcocks turned on rudely fashioned spits. The two of them crouched around a small fire's blackened stones. Even if it had been just for one spring and summer before the first chill winds inched through the hills, they would at least have that much, which would have been enough, or at least enough to tell each other so. But now they wouldn't. He turned his head, looking over the doctor's slumped form. They never would. Heavy with resolve, Anton stood upright, pushing the wooden box aside with the heel of his foot. For a moment, he looked around himself at the churning machinery, the levers and pistons, pumping away at the linkages to the ballroom above. If he tilted his head back, he could see small, bright glimpses of the light from the glittering chandeliers, interrupted by the quick, relentless motion of the dancers, swirling in their courses from one end of the grand space to the other. He watched and listened, then turned toward the valves and gauges spanning the basement's walls. His hand reached out and grasped one of the small iron wheels, hesitated a moment, then twisted it as far as he could until it could open no farther. Each of the valves hissed at him as he did the same to them. When he was done with the last, he stepped back, listening to the machinery shake faster and faster. Clouds of scalding vapor filled the chamber as he turned and made his way to the stone steps leading farther below. The stokers turned their silent gaze toward him. The flames beyond the iron doors glinted on the sweat and soot of their naked chests. More, said Anton. He brought his own gaze from each man to the next, one after another. Higher. He raised his hand and pointed to the furnaces behind them. All you can give. They looked about at each other, then back to him. First the closest one slowly nodded, then they all did. A time had come that the stokers in their chains had thought would never come to them. They turned away, thrusting the blades of their shovels into the heaps of coal, hurling one load after another into the mounting flames. Even before Anton retreated back onto the steps, he felt the dizzying heat wash over him as though it were the tide of a fiery ocean. He brought a forearm across his eyes to shield himself from the vision of suns bursting to life inside the furnaces. He found Giesel at the back of the crowds outside the Apollo Sol. The townspeople pressed their faces close to the high arch windows, gaping through the blood-spattered glass at the whirling scene within. Don't you want to see them? Giesel pulled her rough woolen shawl tighter about herself. This far away from the column building, the snowflakes remained unmelted, clinging to her golden hair. You told me you never liked them. I don't need to see them, said Anton. That was true. When he had come up from the basement, he had walked through the grand ballroom. He had stayed close to the wall to avoid the caged figures of the nobility, whirling about in the interminable courses through the glittering space. Impelled by the unleashed machinery protruding from the floor's gaps, the corseted men and women moved with such velocity that the slightest impact might have sent him sprawling unconscious. At the sudden no noise of the windows shattering, he wrapped Giesel in his arms, turning his back toward the Apollo Sol and shielding her from the shards of glass. There were at least a few people in the crowd whose faces were nicked by the bright flying bits, like a gale of razor-edged ice crystals. They didn't even notice the trickles of red running down their throats as they pushed and scrabbled with the others, 
climbing inside the ballroom to gaze at the dead marvels there. Dead or dying, he had seen at least a few as he had made his way along the side of the ballroom, who might still have been at least partly alive, the last of their strength and breath ebbing away. Slumped in the cages of the whirling machinery, medals dangling from hollow chests, jewels draped over cold breasts, their bodies kept erect only by the confines of the iron bands as they swept in one great circle of the others from one end of the ballroom to the other, then around again and again. The clattering of the machinery, along with the hissing and groans from the boilers beneath, was all that could be heard in the ballroom. That other music, all allegro and dash, had ceased when the violin strings had been sawn through by the ceaseless back and forth fury of the bows. Anton let go of the living form in his arms. He walked over to the dead one that had crashed through the ballroom window, flung by the mechanism that had disintegrated about the woman, its iron band snapped at last by the force of the dance. The dowager's kid leather boots were sodden red now, the feet bloody to pulp inside them. After she could no longer dance, the machines had danced for her and the others caught inside them. Now twin pools of red seeped through the trampled snow that thawed with their thinning heat then froze again. The empty eyes looked up at him with nothing but the night's heavy clouds reflected at their dulling centers. But only for a moment. He felt Giesel stepping close behind, beside him, then saw one of her rag-wrapped clogs kick the dowager's face, hard enough to crack bone and snap its lifeless gaze to one side. Don't. He wrapped his arms around her again, pulling her away as she burst into sobbing tears. It's all right. It is, it is. Even more terrible things were happening inside the grand ballroom. As he led Giesel away, he could hear vengeful shouts and laughter, the creak of metal wedged asunder, bludgeons of stick and fist hitting upon withered flesh. In the center of the city's widest street, Anton held Giesel close to himself. They both looked far beyond the skeletal trees at either side toward the ancient Roman walls. The half-naked stokers were lifting the beams onto their blackened shoulders, unbarring the gates tall as clock towers. Massive iron hinges groaned as the gates slowly parted, the stokers gripping and pulling the timber's edges toward themselves. He closed his eyes and pressed his face to the snow that had traced across Giesel's hair. Soldiers who wore no medals, with worn boots of rough, unpolished leather and hard-faced commissars with machine pistols rather than swords at their belts, astride horses, lean and bony ribbed from their long trek across the steps. They would enter unopposed now, gazing around at all that had fallen so easily into their hands. He held her even tighter, her heart in time with his. Things would be different now. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.